For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Daniel 4, 5, and 6. We're going to try to cover three chapters tonight. So we're going to be moving somewhat quickly through these three stories. You know, human pride. This is one of the biggest problems with humans, is our pride. You know, when God looks down at the human race, it must be very strange for him to see these, these tiny little beings shaking their fist and claiming to be something great on our own. You know, it'd be like you, you know, if you could look down at an ant and that ant would walk along and boast that he's the greatest creature that's ever lived and shake his little fist or whatever they have <laughs> at the end of those legs, <laughs> claiming to be an end in and of himself. You, you just think, you're so small, why can't you see that? Why can't you see, see things the way they really are? And we have these delusions of grandeur, um, and God loves us enough that he opposes those. He opposes our pride, and it's, not be, it's because he want, he's got something he wants to give you, and he, you can't receive that as long as you persist in pride. And so, he loves us enough to break through those delusions of grandeur. And tonight, we're going to see three kings, each with their own version of pride, three of the greatest men who ever lived, and we're going to see how God worked in their lives to try to humble them to give them a chance to come to grips with reality. And we're hoping to learn something about pride as well and how God might work in our lives. So let's just go ahead and look at the first of these three stories, starting in Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4 starts with our good friend King Nebuchadnezzar. We've seen a couple of stories about him already. And it says, King Nebuchadnezzar sent this message to the people of every race and nation and language throughout the world. And what follows is the only chapter in scripture written by a Babylonian. Now, I'm sure Daniel helped write this down. I don't know how much Nebuchadnezzar saw of Daniel's final product that we have in the pages of scripture here. Um, but this is a pretty unique first-person autobiographical account from Nebuchadnezzar's life about he came to be a believer in the true God. You know, this, this story we're going to read is probably a decade or more into Nebuchadnezzar's 43-year reign. In fact, you know, we have that one story we studied last week in Daniel 1 about the very beginning of Daniel's time in Babylon. After that, there's only two more stories from the rest of Nebuchadnezzar's 43-year reign. The one we studied a few weeks ago about the fiery furnace, and then this one here tonight. So these must have been pretty significant stories for, God, for these to be the ones for God to record. He says, peace and prosperity to you. I want you to know all about the miraculous signs and wonders the Most High God has performed for me. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was living in my palace in comfort and prosperity. But one night I had a dream that frightened me. I saw visions that terrified me as I lay in my bed. And so on the one hand, this guy, he's not just a king. He's a king of kings. He's an, he's an emperor. He's conquered other kings, and he's made them subject to him. And, you, you know, you, you probably couldn't find a guy who was more comfortable and prosperous than Nebuchadnezzar. And yet, you know, he's like, he's like one of those people that's climbed the ladder all the way to the top and gotten to the top and realized, this is not what I expected it to be when I got here. 
And so even though he's as comfortable and prosperous as any human being perhaps has ever been, he still is lying there at night, frightened and terrified as he thinks about the future. And he's looking for answers. Well, he calls in his wise men. None of them can interpret his dream. He says, at last Daniel came in before me and I told him the dream. Yes, Daniel, the interpreter of dreams. He says, Daniel, I saw a large tree in the middle of the earth. The tree grew very tall and strong, reaching high into the heavens for all the world to see. And then as I lay there dreaming, I saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven. And the messenger shouted, cut down the tree and lop off its branches. For seven periods of time, let him have the mind of a wild animal instead of the mind of a human. So that everyone may know that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world. So this is a lesson about the sovereignty of God. That's the theme of the book of Daniel. One of the themes, the sovereignty of God over all human mighty people and empires. He gives the kingdoms of the world to anyone he chooses, even to the lowliest of people. Well, upon hearing this dream, Daniel, also known as Belteshazzar, was overcome for a time, frightened by the meaning of the dream. And so he hears this and he just sits there terrified. He can't even speak. And then the king said to him, Belteshazzar, don't be alarmed by the dream and what it means. He says, tell me. And so this would be like, you know, you go into your doctor and he's got the, the test results and he's just sitting there trembling. <laughs> Doesn't want to tell you what it is. That would be terrifying. Belteshazzar, Daniel, replied, I wish the events foreshadowed in this dream would happen to your enemies, my Lord, and not to you. And here I think you can see some of Daniel's care for Nebuchadnezzar. You know, he'd known him 10, 20 years. I'm sure he was praying for him, you know, seeing this guy who's the king of the world, praying that God would somehow break through to him, serving him faithfully. And now here is this guy who he's become somewhat friends with, and he's sad about what this dream predicts is going to happen to him. He says, that tree, your majesty, is you. The tree that was chopped down. He says, you'll be driven from human society. You'll live in the fields with the wild animals. You'll eat grass like a cow, your highness. You'll be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven periods of time will pass while you live this way until you learn that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone he chooses. Nebuchadnezzar has become too proud. He won't acknowledge God, and God is going to send this into his life. And so he says, King Nebuchadnezzar, please accept my advice. Stop sinning and do what's right. Break from your wicked past. Be merciful to the poor. Perhaps then you will continue to prosper. You know, it'd be pretty hard to be humble in King Nebuchadnezzar's shoes. You know, he's the king of the world. <laughs> I mean, we have trouble being, being humble. And so this guy, 
you know, you could sort of understand where he's coming from, but at the same time, God has already declared that you, you, you defeated Jerusalem because God let you, because God decreed this defeat of Jerusalem. He sent him this dream where he shows the succession of world empires, that, that, that Babylon is going to go down. He's also had this miracle with the fiery furnace where Nebuchadnezzar's greatest efforts to destroy these three guys was, was thwarted, and yet he still will not bow before the true God. And so God is opposing Nebuchadnezzar's pride because he wants to give grace to him, because he's got something he's offering him, but he can't receive it in this state of pride. And so how does Nebuchadnezzar respond to this warning from God? Well, as far as we can see, he does nothing. A whole year goes by. He does nothing. And then 12 months later, it says he was taking a walk on the flat roof of the royal palace in Babylon, which was one of the ancient wonders of the, uh, of the world. And it says, as he looked out across the city, he said, look at this great city of Babylon. By my own mighty power, I have built this beautiful city as my royal residence to display my majestic splendor. <laughs> you know, God's not against architecture or beauty. He created those, those concepts. What he's against is pride. And while these words were still in his mouth, a voice called down from heaven. Oh, King Nebuchadnezzar, this message is for you. You are no longer ruler of this kingdom. <laughs> and that same hour, the judgment was fulfilled, and Nebuchadnezzar was driven from human society. He goes crazy. He ate grass like a cow. He was drenched with the dew of heaven. He lived this way until his hair was as long as eagle's feathers. <laughs> his nails were like bird's claws. All right, so we gotta answer this question. Could a man really live as an animal? This just seems like one of those crazy stories that shows Daniel is BS. There's no way this could have happened. Not so fast. Maybe some of our psychology majors know this about the rare human disease known as boanthropy. From the words bovine cow and anthros man, cowman syndrome. It's different than mad cow disease. <laughs> It's, it's a psychological disorder where you think you're a cow. Perhaps you've seen the 1969 Iranian movie, The Cow. Award-winning, actually. This farmer loses his cow and um, is so sad he starts to become a cow. It could be the related syndrome, clinical lycanthropy. Anybody know what that is? Where? Yeah, right. It's where you think that you are a wolf. That one's a little more common than boanthropy. <laughs> a lot of the werewolf lore, it comes from people who had clinical lycanthropy. And they started like howling and, you know, thinking they were wolves. I don't know how Daniel knew about these rare psychological illnesses, <laughs> unless maybe he witnessed one. 
Um, how does this fit in with historical records of Nebuchadnezzar? That's another question people wonder about. We don't have anything from secular history on this. Um, you know, it lasted, it says seven periods of time. Some of our Bibles say seven years, but it just means seven periods of time. Long enough for him to get eight-inch hair and one-inch nails, not nine-inch nails. <laughs> the lesser-known Babylonian band, the one-inch nails. <laughs> But you know, it wouldn't have to be seven years to get that long. I mean, eight-inch hair, I mean, some of us here in this room have that. Some of us have eight-inch beards, and we're proud of them for some reason. It's, it's, a, it's a judgment of God, okay? One-inch nails, I bet some people here have one-inch nails. Seven, months, seven days wouldn't be long enough. Seven months would be enough to get there. Um, ancient historians didn't highlight the failures of their kings. <laughs> that was a good way to get executed. Even today, royal families will cover up, you know, embarrassing things, mental illnesses, for example. This is a mental illness that he had. They were embarrassed by it. And we should keep in mind, archaeology is still discovering and translating the cuneiform tablets. For example, Paul Ferguson, Old Testament scholar, he says, meticulous historical records are available up to about the 11th year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, after which the chronicles are practically silent. Silent for the last 32 years, he says. You can also Google uh, tablet BM34113, and you can read some more. Uh, this is a pretty intriguing tablet that seems to indicate there came a point in time. It's fragmentary, okay? But it came a point in time where Nebuchadnezzar people had to stop listening to him. His son ruled for a while, and then he took back over at a certain point. And so it would actually fit with this right here, with this account in, in Daniel's, Daniel's history here. Daniel would have been, was pretty close to the king. He was very high up in the government, so he would have seen things like this. Well, he got better. After this time had passed, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven. And it looks like he was conscious throughout this. And, and you know, people that have, you know, nervous tics, um, you, you can feel them coming on, but you can't stop them. It, it probably would have been like that for him. But he reached a point where he was so broken, he looked up to heaven, not just with his eyes, but with his heart. And he acknowledged the true God. His pride was broken. And he says, my sanity returned and I praised and worshiped the Most High and honored the one who lives forever. When my sanity returned to me, so did my honor and glory and kingdom. So God preserved it for him. He came back to health and he was able to rule and finish out his reign. And now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and glorify and honor the King of heaven. All his acts are just and true and he's able to humble the proud, a proud guy like me, he says. And so we've got here is the story of Nebuchadnezzar. I think his conversion. I think we'll actually get to meet Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. I think he became a true believer here. That's how I read this chapter. He was probably still a little confused on some things, but I, it, it seems like a genuine conversion story. And so this is our first king with our first type of pride. What do we see here in the pride of Nebuchadnezzar? What is one face that pride can take? Well, in Nebuchadnezzar's life here, he was claiming the gifts while ignoring the giver. Claiming the gifts while ignoring the giver. He's looking out on everything that he ruled over, and he's taking credit for that, and he's ignoring the one who made it all possible. And so two lessons I think we can take from this. One, we need to replace our boasting with thanksgiving. You know, 1 Corinthians 4, 7, a great verse to memorize 
The Apostle Paul says, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you did not? Yeah, Nebuchadnezzar. Why was he the first guy to conquer that much of the known world? Did he just figure it out? Was it just a coincidence? Was he just smarter than everybody else? Was he tougher than everybody else? Or is it possible that God had a purpose for his life and brought him along at just the right time? Was it possible that God predicted this and that God even called him to come in and take the people of Judah captive for disobedience to him and take them back to to Babylon for 70 years? He didn't understand how much of a role God had played in him being in the place that he was. And the same question can be asked of us. What do you have that you did not receive? You think about, you know, God gives lots of good things even to people that totally deny him, people that don't believe in him, like like the gift of life, like a mind to think, like uh, the place you were born, like the fact that you're sitting here in this room right now in one of the wealthiest countries in the world, opportunities that a lot of people don't have. And we're like, oh, well, yeah, it was me. I pulled myself up by my own bootstraps to get me here. Yeah, I mean, you've made some choices, I'm sure. But who's the one that gave you the ability to make those choices? Who's the one that gave you free will? God came up with that. Who's the one that put you in a position where you could make those choices? God. We need to realize that God claims credit for every good thing that ever happens. It says every good and perfect gift comes from from God, from the Father above. And this is something really to think about. This is at the heart of what it means to become a Christian. It's to receive from God. It's not boasting that I'm so awesome that God is, has to accept me, but it's, it's coming as, as someone that, I, I can't do it, Lord. I'm not good enough. I need your free gift. I need a handout from you. That's offensive to the proud person, to the religious person. But baked right into the very fabric of the, of the biblical worldview is the need for humility. It's a need to recognize reality. That's what we need. And so thanksgiving is what we need to replace our boasting with. And have you ever really met somebody who's a really thankful person that wasn't also doing pretty well spiritually? This might be the answer to a lot of your problems in your spiritual life. If you could just learn to be thankful a lot for the things God has given you, even noticing the things you don't normally notice, You'd probably be doing a lot better. Nebuchadnezzar needed to learn to replace his boasting with thanking. Another point on this is we need to be there for the breakthrough. And you think about where Daniel was at in Nebuchadnezzar's life. He'd known him 10, 20 years at this point, maybe. You know, he could have looked at Nebuchadnezzar and been like, this guy's obviously too far gone. He's never going to come around on this. We're just not in a position to see that. We're not omniscient. We can't see the heart. God was at work in Nebuchadnezzar's life, lying on his bed, the top of the world, terrified and wondering, is there anything more than this? At the same time, we can't humble them ourselves. We can't force it. Some people, they're so persistent, they try to force God down someone's throat. And we can't do that either. We gotta be patient. We gotta let them come to their decision. But Daniel seems like he did both. It seems like he was, he was I'm, I'm sure, was praying for Nebuchadnezzar all these years. 
He was there in his life. He wasn't trying to force anything. And Nebuchadnezzar knew where to turn when things really hit. He knew, he would, he knew to turn to Daniel. And Daniel was there to interpret what was going on in his life and point him to God. That's where we need to be in people's lives. Not giving up on them, not forcing it either, but they're close enough that they know where to turn. Checking back in periodically with people to see how they're doing. God is at work often through tragedy. It'll often be when the, the painful things come into people's lives, that's what really gets their attention. That's what breaks through their delusion, like in Nebuchadnezzar's case, that he was the king of the world, and he realizes how small he really is, how scared he really is. I've seen this many times. Uh, one example pretty close to my own heart is, is that of, of my own family member, my brother, who for 22 years of his life was about as hardened toward God as you could get. I remember trying to talk with him when he enlisted in the Air Force, trying to talk him into coming up, you know, giving it a shot here, uh, trying to follow God. You know, I think he was maybe a Christian at that point, And it was just like talking to a brick wall, not interested at all. Went off to the military, did what you do in the military for a couple of years. Um, you know, we would talk occasionally. I would I'd pray for him a little bit, not as much as I should have. And then um, tragedy hit. You know, we went to war. And all of a sudden, he's on the phone with me because his life's falling apart and he's in tears. And I'm listening and trying to point him back to God. A couple more years went by and another tragedy hit. One day our dad woke up, had no feeling on the right side of his body. They did some tests. They found an inoperable brain tumor the size of a golf ball. And I remember people were kind of tiptoeing around how bad the news was and not really being honest. And I remember talking with, with my mom. I was like, I got to tell Jeff what's really going on here, that dad is almost certainly going to die. And so I remember calling him, and, and I, just, I just told him, I was like, look, you got to know what's really happening up here. You're living pretty far away. And 22 years of resistance took about 30 minutes after he got off the phone with me for him to be down on his knees before God and saying, okay, I surrender. And he's been going for God ever since. But you never know. You never know when something's going to break through like that. God was doing a lot of other things in his life as well. I just couldn't see. We can't force it on people. God's got his own timing. We can sure pray. Can't make people say yes, but prayer can make it harder to say no. And we need to be there. Be there for the breakthrough. To point them to God. That's what Daniel did here with Nebuchadnezzar. Who was claiming the gifts while ignoring the giver. Let's talk about another face of pride. Daniel chapter 5. By the way, my dad got better. <laughs> That's the end of that story. He went into the neurosurgeon, and the guy was like, to, to get his test results, after many more months of just, we don't know what's going on, and the guy was like, I'm meeting with 20 people today, and you're the only one I've got good news for. He's still alive today. 
you never know how long you got. I mean, you, 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 probably, you probably have longer than tonight, although in this next story, we're going to see Belshazzar <laughs> did not. How can a human be that proud when we realize we could die any day? What's going to happen next? You're completely out of control of that. Let's read Belshazzar's story. Many years later, so we're done with Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel now. We're on to Belshazzar. He gave a great feast for a thousand of his nobles and he drank wine with them. We talked about Belshazzar last week. I don't have time to go back through that, but this is a great argument for the reliability of Daniel. Belshazzar was doubted for centuries. History lost track of him. People laughed at the book of Daniel and said he made up Belshazzar. And then we start finding all these tablets including the Nabonidus cylinders with his name all over it. He was the final king of uh, Babylon. He, he was co-regent. He was number two under his dad, Nabonidus. Anyway, you can get last week's study if you want, and want to see that. It's a lesson that you don't doubt Daniel, though, that's for sure. He's given a great feast for a thousand of his nobles. He's drinking wine with them. And while he was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver cups that his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. While they drank from them, they praised their idols made of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. So he's toasting all these idols for all the gods that they have, worshiping the created things with these cups that were supposed to point to the glory of God in the temple. Drunk. As it says in Romans 125, they worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. That's one, of the, that's one of the most proud things that we can do. To worship the created thing, it's supposed to point us to God. And we worship that instead. Well, suddenly they saw the fingers of a human hand writing on the plaster wall of the king's palace near the lampstand. Surprise. And the king himself saw the hand as it wrote, and his face turned pale with fright, and his knees knocked together in fear, and his legs gave way beneath him. Here's Rembrandt's version of this. A severed hand interrupting your party. (laughs) Talk about a party foul, man. (laughs) What did it say? We learn a few verses later. It said, mene, mene, tekel, parson. These were monetary units. This is like a severed handwriting, quarter, quarter, nickel, dime. (laughs) And you're like, what does it mean? (laughs) They're freaking out. He He sobers up pretty quick. All the king's wise men came in. None of them could read the writing or tell him what it meant. So Daniel was brought in before the king. He's old now. I mean, Daniel's 85 This is the very end of the time in Babylon. Belshazzar says, I'm told you can give interpretations and solve difficult problems. If you can read these words and tell me their meaning, you will be clothed in purple robes of royal honor and you'll have a gold chain placed around your neck and you'll become the third highest ruler in the kingdom. He was third because Belshazzar was number two. He can only be three. He's like, Daniel, if you can do this for me, I'll make you look like this. (laughs) Although, let's be real, at age 85, Daniel's probably going to be looking more like this. 
an old man blinged out, wearing royal robes. Old Daniel answers the king, you can keep your gifts or give them to someone else. I will tell you what the writing means, though. He's not intrigued by this offer of wealth. Your majesty, the Most High God gave sovereignty, majesty, glory, and honor to your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. That was his grandfather. But when his heart and mind were puffed up with arrogance, he was brought down from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He goes on to tell the story about the beast that we just read and his loss of sanity, how God humbled him. Belshazzar knew that whole story. He says, you're a successor. You knew all this. And yet you've not humbled yourself. You're still persisting in your pride. So God has sent this hand to write this message. This is what the words mean. Mene means numbered. God's numbered the days of your reign and has brought it to an end. Tekel means weighed. You've been weighed on the balances and you have not measured up. And parson means divided. Your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians, the next empire to conquer Babylon. We're going to see a lot more about them in the weeks to come in these prophecies. And so Belshazzar gets this news, and what does he do? Does he repent? Does he say, God, I'm so sorry. Please accept me. Nope. He's like, well, all right. He gave the command to dress Daniel in purple robes. He put the gold chain around his neck. He says, I proclaim you the third highest ruler in all of my kingdom. And that very night, Belshazzar, the Babylonian king, was killed. <laughs> By the Medes and the Persians who had surrounded the city. And you're like, really? He's throwing a feast with the city under siege? Actually, yeah. <laughs> and we know this not just from Daniel... Steve Miller, the OT scholar, not the space cowboy. <laughs> he says, Xenophon, the historian from the 5th century BC, he added that the city was invaded while the Babylonians were feasting in a time of drunken revelry. Herodotus related a festival was in progress. In fact, Z Xenophon, <laughs> Xenos, um, <laughs> It is where, uh, yeah. <laughs> Xenos is a Greek word, okay? <laughs> Xenophon cited the festival as the reason the Persians chose to attack Babylon on that particular night. Yeah, they actually dammed up the river that ran through the city so it would get low enough that their troops could go under through the, uh, through the marsh and up into the city, and they conquered the great city of Babylon, without a fight. We also learned that the people, they were so sick of Nabonidus and Belshazzar and their cruelty that they welcomed Cyrus in. And so the fact that it was taken so peacefully, it totally squares with these other secular historians. I don't know how Daniel would have been, I don't know how the, the writer of Daniel would have been able to fake that a couple hundred years later unless he had access to these Greek and Persian libraries with these histories in it. Maybe he was there. 
Maybe he's relating the events exactly as it happened, which is confirmed by secular history. Let's talk about Belshazzar's pride a little bit here. What was his pride? Nebuchadnezzar claimed the gifts, ignored the giver. Belshazzar, he worshiped the creation and ignored the creator. About as proud as you can get right there. You know, God's creation should point us to him. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. This is, we should look around and we know in our hearts there's really a God who's there that should lead us to seek God. But instead, there's, there's a lot of people that still worship idols in our enlightened world today. Literal idols on a shelf of gold, wood, stone, the things they worshiped. But also, others, they, they look at the good things God has made and, and they try to explain them away. You, you think about something like free will, such a powerful concept that God has built right into us. He's given us that ability. And yet, if, if you read the New Atheists, they essentially, they deny that there is such a thing as free will. Under a purely biological model, it's hard to even find a case for the ability to choose this or that. For example, Stephen Hawking, in his 2010 book, he says the molecular basis of biology shows that biological processes are governed by the laws of physics and chemistry and therefore are as determined as the orbits of the planets. So it seems that we are no more than biological machines and free will is just an illusion. Yes, he says our thinking is as fixed as the orbits of the planets. Einstein said the same thing. And yet, he's writing a book trying to convince people to change their thinking, which he's also arguing is as fixed as the orbits of the planets. He's, he's used his own free will and his thought to decide to write this book, and he's trying to convince you to change your thinking, to side with him that you can't change your thinking. It's as fixed as the orbits of the planets. I wish I had time to go into this. We, we covered a lot of this in early Genesis. Uh, there's so many things we could talk about here. I just wanted to give you a little sampling. Worshiping the creation, ignoring the creator. A second point on this is what does Daniel do? He teaches us to see through the bling. He teaches us to see the folly of living for this world, for, this, for the created things around us. That's really what living for the world is. I mean, imagine Daniel just gets all decked out in the gold chains and the robes, even though Babylon only has three hours left in their existence. And he's like, finally, I've made it. I'm really somebody for three hours. And then the the Medes and the Persians waltz in, and Babylon has fallen. That's sort of what it's like when we live for the world. I mean, he's he's at this party where he knows the party ends in three hours. Everything ends in three hours. You know, and living this life is sort of like being at this party. I mean, imagine you're at a party where in three hours, everybody dies. How would you spend your time at that party? Would you try to get as much gold as you can during those three hours? Would you try to experience as much pleasure as possible? Or would you think about, is there an after party? (laughs) How do I get invited to that at the end of this party? I don't know if you realize it, but everybody dies. 
The death rate is 100%. How much thought have you given to what happens at the end of the party? Belshazzar, none. He's like, all right, I got three hours. Let's party! <laughs> and Daniel's like, I can't believe you're loading this stuff on me. This is all going down. Your days are numbered. It, the, the clock is zero. And God is calling out to you. He's offering you a free gift, but Belshazzar couldn't humble himself like Nebuchadnezzar did, his grandfather. Can you? Can you humble yourself before God and receive the free gift through Jesus Christ? Let's look at one more form of pride. This one will move more quickly through. Daniel chapter 6. Darius the Mede decided to divide the kingdom into 120 provinces. Yeah, Daniel goes on to say Darius was 62 when he took over the kingdom. Now, there's some debate about who was this Darius because the guy named Cyrus was the king that took over Babylon. He was the one that defeated Babylon and he also sends the Jews back to Jerusalem. He also had a governor named Gobrius who was actually his general, who he made governor over Babylon, but there's no Darius for another couple of decades. And so what's going on here? I'm not going to get into all the the difficulties here. I think the best way to take this and this, this Archer article that we talked about last week that we ran out of, we got more now though, on the historicity of Daniel. He gets into this some. But I think one of the best ways to take this is that Darius is not a name but a title. The, the, the name means the royal one, kind of like the pharaohs of Egypt were called pharaohs, you know. It's a title. And then it can be either applied to Cyrus. It could actually be an alternate name for Cyrus. There's a case for that as well, which I, I kind of lean toward. Or it could just be uh, a title for the royal one. And um, this is just an alternate name that Daniel's using here in his account. Um, Either way, Cyrus and Gabirus, both guys were in their early 60s when, this, when they conquered Babylon, so either one would fit. Um, I think Cyrus fits just a little better, but I, I could go either way. Anyway, you can read up on that if that's something you're interested in. But one of his first acts is he divides Babylon up into provinces. Remember, remember Daniel said, your kingdom will be divided? He's dividing it up into 120 provinces. He's got rulers over each. He's got to govern this new territory. He picked Daniel as one of his three head supervisors who would oversee the leaders of these provinces. So he's sort of like a leader of the governors of these provinces. He's got maybe a third of what used to be Babylon under his administration. Made sense to pick somebody who already knew the territory who he could trust. I guess he felt like he could trust Daniel. And so Babylon falls, Daniel's still right there, right at the top. He's old, though. Daniel soon proved himself more capable than all the other administrators and high officers. And because of his great ability, the king made plans to put him over the entire empire, which the other guys didn't like too much. They were jealous of Daniel. So they began searching for some fault in the way Daniel was handling the government affairs. But they couldn't find anything to criticize or condemn And so imagine this, they've got the CIA, the FBI, they've got WikiLeaks on the case, uh, Sherlock Holmes, Russian email hackers, anybody and everybody they can find 
to try to dig up some dirt on Daniel so they can take him down. This is a political move to try to discredit him. But they couldn't find anything. They looked through his emails, his web history, his credit card purchases. They got nothing on Daniel. It's text messages, nothing. <laughs> I wonder how well some of us would stand up to this kind of scrutiny. He was faithful, always responsible, completely trustworthy. But one thing their intelligence did turn up was this. Our only chance of finding grounds for accusing Daniel will be in connection with the law of his God. One thing we've learned, this guy prays every day, three times a day like clockwork. I wonder if we can use that against him. Maybe we could set the law of the Persians and Medes over against the law of his God, and then we know he's going to obey what he thinks is the higher authority. So the administrators and high officers went to the king and they said, long live King Darius. We're all in agreement that the king should make a law that will be strictly enforced. Give orders that for the next 30 days, any person who prays to anyone, divine or human, except to you, your majesty, will be thrown into the den of lions. Why not a fiery furnace? Well, Daniel knew the Persians didn't kill people in fire because they thought fire was divine and it would immortalize the person. They killed people with lions. Nebuchadnezzar used the fiery furnace. Daniel knew how each kingdom executed their prisoners. Another point of historicity. He'd be thrown into the den of lions. And now your majesty issue and sign this law so it cannot be changed, an official law of the Medes and Persians that cannot be revoked. Another, another historical point that Daniel gets right. Nebuchadnezzar was an absolute monarchy. By now we've moved to a constitutional monarchy. And so kings could sign, they, they, could, they could issue decrees, but then they couldn't repeal a decree that they had just issued. So it's sort of ironic. He's, Darius is going to issue a decree that people can only pray to him and yet he doesn't even have enough power to repeal the decree that he's about to issue. And so King Darius signed the law. He says, yeah, that sounds pretty good. Pray to me for 30 days. All right. And, you know, Darius, on the one hand, this doesn't seem as bad as the previous two examples of pride. But on the one hand, it is really a new level of pride. He's setting himself up as God. And saying, you can only pray to me for the next month. That's pretty bad. And you know, it's nice to live in a country with freedom of religion. But what would you do if, like Daniel, that freedom was suddenly revoked in a single day? Let's see what Daniel does here. He hears about this law. He learned that the law had been signed. And so he went home. And he knelt down as usual in his upstairs room with its windows open toward Jerusalem. He prayed three times a day, just as he had always done, giving thanks to his God. And so what does Daniel do? He does what he always did. He's praying with the window open three times a day, which is probably why they couldn't find anything wrong with him in those other areas, because he walked with God. His relationship with God was tight. And you know, why didn't he close the window? Well, I mean, it doesn't really make sense to start closing the window at this point. 
He's, everybody knows he does this three times a day. They've, they've got all the intel on him. They can, they're they're going to come into the house anyway and see him praying there. If he closes the window, it just looks like he's trying to hide something. And he's not. He just decides, I, I respectfully decline to follow that law because there's a clear higher law that I must obey. I can't obey any law that says don't pray for a month. And what is he praying I don't know. Remember, he's pretty old at this point. Is he praying for God to protect him? Or is he just saying, God, thank you that I've lived a good long life for all I've got to see. I pray that I can die with honor. I pray that I would die in such a way that's pleasing to you. I wonder if that was maybe what he's praying. I wonder if he's also like, so this is what you had for me all these years? Torn apart by lions? (laughs) Didn't see that one coming. And so there he is for the world to see. And the officials went to Daniel's house. They found him praying and asking for God's help. And so they went straight to the king and reminded him about his law. And then they told the king, that man Daniel, one of the captives from Judah, is ignoring you and your law. He still prays to his God three times a day. Well, hearing this, the king was deeply troubled and he tried to think of a way to save Daniel. He realizes at this point he's been tricked this is a political move that he realizes he's fallen for. And so he spent the rest of the day looking for a way to get Daniel out of this predicament. And in the evening, the men went together to the king and said, Your majesty, you know, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, that no law of the king signs can be changed. And he's like, You're right. And so he had to give orders for Daniel to be arrested and thrown into the den of lions. And the king said to him, Daniel, May your God, whom you serve so faithfully, rescue you. As he lowers him down into the lion's den. And Daniel's like, gee, thanks. (laughs) Thanks for the prayer. You know, God uses all things for good for those who love him. (laughs) So there he is. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. The king sealed the stone with his own royal seal and the seals of his nobles so that no one could rescue Daniel. He's really making sure here. And the king returned to his palace and he spent the night fasting. He refused his usual entertainment, whatever that was. (laughs) He just couldn't sleep at all that night. Very early the next morning, The king got up. He hurried out to the lion's den. And when he got there, he called out in anguish, Daniel, servant of the living God, was your God whom you serve so faithfully able to rescue you from the lions? And he waits. And then he hears a voice. Long live the king. (laughs) And he thinks that's not a lion. He says, my God sent his angel to shut the lion's mouths so they wouldn't hurt me. For I've been found innocent in his sight. And I've not wronged you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and he ordered that Daniel be lifted from the den and not a scratch was found on him for he had trusted in his God. That's where Daniel put his trust in the face of maybe the scariest thing he's ever had to face down. 
He was ready to die for his faith, no matter how, how this turned out. Sort of like his buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had so many decades ago when they faced a fiery furnace. Well, let's just, let's try to summarize these three faces of pride. What do we see from Nebuchadnezzar? Claiming the gifts while ignoring the giver. But from Daniel we learned, be there for the breakthrough. Be there when God finally breaks through to this person. If he does. Belshazzar, worship the creation while ignoring the creator. But from Daniel we learned to see through the bling. To see it for what it really is. Temporary. Passing away. To live for the after party and not for the party. And third and finally from Darius. Setting himself up as God while ignoring God. Another face of pride. And what do we learn from Daniel. He teaches us to keep trusting the true God no matter what the cost. And this is an important final point to understanding the link between the narratives of Daniel and the prophecies of Daniel. What Daniel's going to predict is he's going to predict there's going to come a day where believers are suffering for their faith, where a proud ruler will set himself up as God and demand the allegiance of the world. And where it will be punishable by death and starvation if you refuse to bow to him. He says, a day is coming where religious freedom will once again be lost. And I believe it. And what Daniel says is, we face something sort of like that in our day. And we trusted God. We trusted in the sovereignty of God no matter how it looked on the outside. And we decided to throw in with him, no matter what the cost. And so then the question's back in your court, what are you going to do? Some of us might live right into that very time. The time of the end, the end times. A time that Jesus calls the great tribulation. And we've got to decide, are we going to decide like Daniel and his buddies, to trust God no matter what, and live for what's coming next? All right, let's pray. Yeah, Lord, thanks for how you're trying to bring us into an understanding of reality about where we stand in relation to you. Thanks that it's not to, build us, to beat us down, but it's to, because you want to give us something that we just can't receive unless we can humble ourselves. I pray for anybody who's never humbled themselves to receive your forgiveness through Christ, that they would do so tonight. And I pray that you would lead us more and more into being the kind of people who are thankful for the gifts you've given us instead of just claiming credit for them or complaining about what we don't have. And also that we would allow, we'd look at your creation, allow that to point us to you, help us to see how big and awesome you are. And I pray that we would throw in with you no matter what the cost, not be deceived by this world, but throw in with you and live for that next life. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.